Chapter Thirteen of the Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Frozen Pirate by W. Clark Russell. Chapter Thirteen I Explore the Hold in Foxhall. It was pitch dark when I awoke, and I conceived it must be the middle of the night. But to my astonishment, on lighting the lantern and looking at the watch, which I had taken the precaution to wind up overnight, I saw it wanted but twenty minutes of nine o'clock, so that I had passed through twelve hours of solid sleep. However, it was only needful to recollect where I was, and to cast a glance at the closed door and port, to understand why it was dark. I had slept fairly warm, and awoke with no sensation of cramp. But the keen air had caused the steam of my breath to freeze upon my mouth in such a manner that, when feeling the sticky inconvenience I put my finger to it, it fell like a little mask, and I likewise felt the pain of cold in my face to such an extent that had I been blistered there my cheeks, nose, and brow could not have smarted more. This resolved me henceforward to wrap up my head and face before going to rest. I opened the door and passed out, and observed an amazing difference between the temperature of the air in which I had been sleeping and that of the atmosphere in the passage, a happy discovery, for it served to assure me that, if I was careful to lie under plenty of coverings and to keep the outer air excluded, the heat of my body would raise the temperature of the little cabin nor, providing the compartment was ventilated throughout the day, was there anything to be feared from the vitiation of the air by my own breathing. My first business was to light the fire and set my breakfast to thaw, and boil me a kettle of water, and some time after I went on deck to view the weather and to revolve in my mind the routine of the day. On opening the door of the companion hatch, I was nearly blinded by the glorious brilliance of the sunshine on the snow. After the blackness of the cabin it was like looking at the sun himself, and I had to stand a full three minutes with my hand upon my eyes before I could accustom my sight to the dazzling glare. It was fine weather again. The sky over the glass-like masts of the schooner was a clear dark blue, with a few light clouds blowing over it from the southward. The wind had shifted, at last, but pure as the heavens were, the breeze was piping briskly with the weight and song of a small gale, and its fangs of frost, even in the comparative quiet of the sheltered deck, bit with a fierceness that had not been observable yesterday. The moment I had the body of the vessel in my sight, I perceived she had changed her position since my last view of her. Her bows were more raised, and she lay over further by the depth of a plank. I stared earnestly at the rocky slopes on either hand, but could not have sworn their figuration was changed. An eager hope shot into my mind, but it quickly faded into an emotion of apprehension. It was conceivable, indeed, that on a sudden, some early day, I might find the schooner liberated and afloat, and this was the first inspiriting rush. But then came the fear that the disruption and volcanic throes of the ice might crush her, a fear rational enough when I saw the height she lay above the sea, 
and how by pressure those slopes which formed her cradle might be jammed and welded together. The change of her posture then fell upon me with a kind of a shock, and determined me, when I had broken my fast, to search her hold for a boat or for materials for constructing some ark by which I might float out to sea should the ice grow menacing and force me from the schooner. I made a plentiful meal, feeling the need of abundance of food in such a temperature as this, and heartily grateful that there was no need why I should stint myself. The having to pass the two figures every time I went on deck and returned was extremely disagreeable and unnerving, and I considered that, after searching the hold, the next duty I owed myself was to remove them on deck, and even over the side, if possible, for one place below was as sure to keep them haunting me as another, and they would be as much with me in the forecastle as if I stowed them away in the cabin adjoining mine. Whilst I ate, my mind was so busy with considerations of the change in the ship's posture during the night that it ended in determining me to take a survey of her from the outside, and then climb the cliffs and look around before I fell to any other work. I fetched the cloak I had stripped the body on the rocks of, and thawed and warmed it, and put it on, and a noble covering it was, thick, soft, and clinging. Then, arming myself with a boarding-pike to serve as a pole, I dropped into the fore-chains and then stepped on to the ice, and very slowly and carefully walked around the schooner, examining her closely, and boring into the snow upon her side with my pike, wherever I suspected a hole or indent. I could find nothing wrong with her in this way, though what a thaw might reveal I could not know. Her rudder hung frozen upon its pintles, and looked as it should. Some little distance abaft her rudder, where the hollow or chasm sloped to the sea, was a great split, three or four feet wide. This had certainly happened in the night, and I must have slept as sound as the dead not to hear the noise of it. Such a rent as this sufficed to account for the subsidence of the afterpart of the schooner and her further inclination to larboard. Indeed, the hollow was now coming to resemble the ways on which ships are launched, and you would have conceived by the appearance of it that if it should slope a little more yet, off would slide the schooner into the sea and in the right position too, that is, stern on but I prayed with all my might and main for anything but this. It would have been very well had the hollow gone in a gentle declivity to the wash of the sea, to the water itself, in short. But it terminated at the edge of a cliff. Not very high, indeed, but high enough to warrant the prompt foundering of any vessel that should launch herself off it. Happily, the keel was too solidly frozen into the ice to render a passage of this description possible and the conclusion I arrived at, after careful inspection, was that the sole chance that could offer for the delivery of the vessel to her proper element was in the cracking up and disruption of the bed on which she lay. Having ended my survey of the schooner, I addressed myself to the ascent of the starboard slope, and scaled it much more easily than I had yesterday managed to make my way over the rocks. I climbed to the highest block that was nearest me on the summit, and here I had a very large view of the scene. Much to my astonishment, the first objects which encountered my eye were four icebergs, 
floating detached, but close together, at a distance of about three miles on my side of the northeast trend of the island. I counted them, and made them four. They swam low, and it was very easily seen that they had formed a part of the coast there, though, as the form of the ice that way was not familiar to me, and as, moreover, the glare rendered the prospect very deceptive, I could not distinguish where the ruptures were. But one change in the face of this white country I did note, and that was the entire disappearance of two of the most beautiful of the little crystal cities that adorned the northward range. The gale of the night had wrought havoc, and the unsubstantiality of this dazzling kingdom of ice was made startlingly apparent by the evanishment of the delicate glassy architecture, and by those four white hills floating like ships, under their courses and topsails, out upon the flashing hurry and leaping blue and yeast of the water. It was blowing harder than I had imagined. The wind was extraordinarily sharp, and the full current of it not long to be endured on my unsheltered eminence. The sea, swelling up from the south, ran high and was full of seething and tumbling noises, and of the roaring of the beakers, dashing themselves against the ice in prodigious bodies of foam, which so boiled along the foot of the cliffs that their fronts, rising out of it, might have passed for the spume itself, freezing as it leapt into a solid mass of glorious brilliance. The eye never explored a scene more full of the splendor of light and of vivid color. Here and there the rock shone prismatically, as though some flying rainbow had shivered itself upon them and lay broken. The blue of the sea and sky was deepened into an exquisite perfection of liquid tint by the blinding whiteness of the ice, which in exchange was sharpened into a wonderful effulgence by the hues above and around it. Again and again, along the whole range as far as the sight could explore, the spray rose in stately clouds of silver which were scattered by the wind in meteoric scintillations of surpassing beauty flashing through the fires of the sun like millions of little blazing stars. There were twenty different dyes of light in the collection of spires, fanes, and pillars near the schooner, whose masts, yards, and gear mingled their own particular radiance with that of these dainty figures. And wherever I bent my gaze, I found so much of sun-tinctured loveliness, and the wild white graces of ice-forms, and the dazzle of snow surfaces softening into an azure gleaming in the far blue distances, that, but for the piercing wind, I could have spent the whole morning in taking into my mind the marvellous spirit of this ocean picture, forgetful of my melancholy condition, in the intoxication of this draught of free and spacious beauty. Satisfied as to the state of the ice and the posture of the schooner viewed from without, I sent a slow and piercing gaze along the ocean line, and then returned to the ship. The strong wind, the dance of the sea, the grandeur of the great tract of whiteness, vitalized by the flying of violet cloud shadows along it, had fortified my spirits, and, being free, for a while, of all superstitious dread, I determined to begin by exploring the forecastle and ascertaining if more bodies were in the schooner than those two in the cabin and the giant form on deck. I threw some coal on the fire, and placed an ox-tongue along with the cheese and a lump of frozen wine in a pannikin in the oven, 
for I had a mind to taste the vessel's stores, and thought the tongue would make an agreeable change, and then, putting a candle into the lantern, walked very bravely to the forecastle and entered it. I was prepared for the scene of confusion, but I must say it staggered me afresh with something of the force of the first impression. Sailors' chests lay open in all directions, and their contents covered the decks. There was the clearest evidence here that the majority of the crew had quitted the vessel in a violent hurry, turning out their boxes to cram their money and jewelry into their pockets, and heedlessly flinging down their own and the clothes which had fallen to their share. This I had every right to suppose from the character of the muddle on the floor, for, passing the light over a part of it, I witnessed a great variety of attire of a kind which certainly no sailor of any age ever went to sea with. Not so fine, perhaps, as that which lay in the cabins, but very good, nevertheless, particularly the linen. I saw several wigs, beavers of the kind that was formerly carried under the arm, women's silk shoes, petticoats, pieces of lace, silk, and so forth, all directly assuring me that what I viewed was the contents of passengers' luggage, together with consignments and such freight as the pirates would seize and divide, every man filling his chest. Perhaps there was less on the whole than I supposed, the litter looking great by reason of everything having been torn open and flung down loose. I trod upon these heaps with little concern. They appealed to me only as provision for my fire, should I be disappointed in my search for coal. The hammocks obliged me to move with a stooped head. It was only necessary to feel them with my hand, that is, to test their weight by pushing them in the middle to know if they were tenanted. Some were heavier than others, but all of them much lighter than they would have been had they contained human bodies, and by this rapid method I satisfied my mind that there were no dead men here, as fully as if I had looked into each separate hammock. The discovery was exceedingly comforting, for, though I do not know that I should have meddled with any frozen man had I found him in this place, his being in the forecastle would have rendered me constantly uneasy and it must have come to my either closing this part of the ship and shrinking from it as from a spectre-ridden gloom, or to my disposing of the bodies by dragging them on deck, a dismal and hateful job. There were no ports but a hatch overhead. Wanting light, the candle making the darkness but little more than visible, I fetched from the arms-room a handspike that lay in a corner, and, mounting a chest, struck at the hatch so heartily that the ice cracked all around it, and the cover rose. I pushed it off, and down rolled the sunshine in splendor. Everything was plain now. In many places, glittering among the clothes, were gold and silver coins, a few silver ornaments such as buckles and watches, things not missed by the pirates in the transport of their flight. In kicking a coat aside I discovered a couple of silver crucifixes bound together, and close by were a silver goblet and the hilt of a sword broken off short for the sake of the metal it was of. Nothing ruder than this interior is imaginable. The men must have been mighty put to it for room. There was a window in the head, but the snow veiled it. Maybe the rogues messed together aft and only used this forecastle to lie in. Right under the hatch where the light was strongest was a dead rat. I stooped to pick it up, meaning to fling it onto the deck, 
but its tail broke off at the rump like a pipe-stem. Close against the after bulkhead that separated the forecastle from the cook-room was a little hatch. There was a quantity of wearing apparel upon it, and I should have missed it, but for catching sight of some three inches of the dark line the cover made in the deck. On clearing away the clothes, I perceived a ring similar to that in the lazarette hatch, and it rose to my first drag, and left me the whole yawning black below. I peered down, and observed a stout stanchion traversed by iron pins for the hands and feet. The atmosphere was nasty, and to give it time to clear, I went to the cookhouse and warmed myself before the fire. The fresh air, blowing down the forecastle hatch, speedily sweetened the hold. I lowered the lantern and followed, and found myself on top of some rum or spirit casks, which, on my hitting them, returned to me a solid note. There was a forepeak forward in the bows, and the casks went stowed to the bulkhead of it. The top of this bulkhead was open four feet from the upper deck, and on holding the lantern over and putting my head through, I saw a quantity of coals. If the forepeak went as low as the vessel's floor, then I calculated there could not be less than fifteen tons of coal in it. This was a noble discovery to fall upon, and it made me feel so happy that I do not know that the assurance of my being immediately rescued from this island could have given a lighter pulse to my heart. The candle yielded a very small light, and it was difficult to see above a yard or so ahead or around. I turned my face aft and crawled over the casks, and came to under the main hatch, where lay coils of hawser, buckets, blocks, and the like. But there was no pinnace, though here she had been stowed, as a sailor would have promptly seen. A little way beyond, under the great cabin, was the powder magazine, a small bulk-headed compartment with a little door, atop of which was a small bull's-eye lamp. I peered, warily enough, you will suppose, into this place, and made out twelve barrels of powder. I heartily wished them overboard, and yet, after all, they were not very much more dangerous than the wine and spirits in the lazarette and forehold. The run remained to be explored, the after-part, I mean, under the lazarette deck to the rudder-post. But I had seen enough. Crawling about that black interior was cold, lonesome, melancholy work, and it was rendered particularly arduous by the obligation of caution imposed by my having to bear a light amid freight mainly formed of explosives and combustible matter. I had found plenty of coal, and that sufficed. So I returned by the same road I had entered, and, sliding to the bulkhead door to keep the cold of the forecastle out of the cook-room, I stirred the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it, to rest and think. End of chapter 13